1: This podcast and the bonus episodes we've been doing during the week are made possible thanks to our patrons. Please join me in welcoming and thanking new patrons Aubrey Mason, Jillian Sepik, Melody Hoshek, Lobs, Frau Tottenkinder, Kat, Cynical Wordsmith, Megan Jasper, XmasterX09, Mizuki2011, Kali, Adam Opat, Not Irish, Anthony Bager, Kayla McDaniels, Kevin Newman, Jonathan Raya, Get You John Grills Out of the Lads. Hope I read that one right. L, Gabby Heal, Tristan, Ashley Lasnetsky Lucas, Clarissa Tokowski, and Andrew Gash. Our patrons mean everything to us, and we do all we can to give back for their generosity. Starting for as little as $1 a month, our reward tiers include bonuses like early commercial-free access to all episodes, shout-outs, weekly Patreon-only bonus episodes, immediate access to our entire back catalog of almost 500 Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes, coffee cups, t-shirts, and logo hoodies. If you'd like to see how you can support the podcast and get rewarded for doing so, please check out our reward tiers at patreon.com creepypod. No...
2: Listener discretion is advised. Creepy Presents The Blackout Box
1: Written by Marcus Demanda And narrated by Jessica McAvoy, Erica Sanderson, Jimmy Ferrer, Owen McCune, and Nate Dufort.
3: I woke up. But I couldn't move. Bright light burning down on me from a sterile white ceiling, blaring circular bulbs encased in steel. I blinked, and I found that with some effort I could turn my head, if nothing else. Across from me, three feet away, lay a man on a rolling cot, strapped at the wrists, ankles, and waist. He wore a hospital gown he was asleep he looked perfectly fit uninjured probably in his early 20s i tried to crane my head forward taking a personal inventory but my head wouldn't go that way still turning my eyes down i was able to make out that i was in an identical gown on an identical cot and identically restrained why what had I done I tried to speak my lips moved but no sound came out panic threatened and my brain immediately went to work fighting it down my name is amber McNally I'm 18 years old I live at home with my mom I'm a senior at Woodbridge High School an honor student top of my class I'm on the swim team I was in an accident I'd never heard the other car crash strange it had been out of control fish tailing tire squealing all of it I recalled perfectly i could still see it just as it happened i have an eidetic memory in fact i'm exceptional in every way at least according to my parents and teachers what time was it why wasn't mom here where the hell was i turning my head the other way i saw surgical trays on white blankets atop carts I saw a wall of closed metal cabinets, and there was a door opposite me, which opened even as I noticed it. I caught only the briefest glimpse into the hallway beyond. Sterile white, just like the rest of this place. I couldn't tell anything else, because the view was mostly blocked by the figure who came through it, and he closed himself in with me right away. He wore a lab coat and blue jeans. He had glasses and a dark goatee, and was probably in his late 20s. Without my own glasses, it was hard to tell much more than that, until he clomped right up next to me, his hard shoes echoing in the wide room. I tried to speak. I wanted to say, Where am I? Who are you? Are you a doctor? What happened? My lips hardly trembled. No sound came out of them. He smiled at me. Hello, Amber. He took my wrist and hand, pressed his thumb against the vein.
4: Good, good. You're almost normal. My name is Gregory Coulson. Your fellow candidate, the one on the other bed, is Matthew Shane Tracy. But I bet he goes by Matt. He looks like a man. Wouldn't you say?
3: Why can't I talk? My brain screamed at him. What happened to me? Then, what do you mean, fellow candidate? What is this?
4: Wiggle your fingers,
3: he said. Wiggle your toes. Make your little
4: piggies dance for me, Amber.
3: I felt my eyes bulging with the effort to communicate with him. I felt the tears come. I felt them run down my cheeks. I tried moving my fingers and toes. Nothing.
4: Are you trying?
3: Blink once for yes, twice for no. I blinked once. Excellent. He said, and got to work unfastening the restraints.
4: Right now, your bloodstream is digesting a little medicinal cocktail, consisting of 2 neuroblocking neuro-blocking paralytic agents and a steroid for independent breathing. School records indicate you're a smart girl, so I take it you
3: understand this. He waited, arched an eyebrow. I blinked once. Just tell me who you are, I thought. Why am I here?
4: You're in the basement of a hospital, he said. And oh, look, your roommate's waking up. Hello, Matt. You're looking well.
3: He left me, his hard shoes echoing and clomping over to the other cot as he passed out of sight. Turning my head took time and effort. I heard him go through the same fingers and toes drill with Matt, my roommate, as he had done with me. By the time I was able to look at them, the doctor, or lab technician, or orderly, whatever the hell Gregory was. the restraints off him as well he stood between us clapped his hands together just once
4: well now that you're both up here's what's what i'm going to tell you something that's going to be unpleasant for you to hear but i've been told i have to miss markham says it's only decent a basic kindness to allow you to prepare yourselves In whatever way best suits your psychology and belief system. She's very grateful to you both.
3: I had no idea who this Mrs. Markham was, specifically. But the family was one of the richest in the county. There were whole apartment complexes that bore that name. Townhome communities as well. It was everywhere. As for Gregory, he seemed almost jovial a master of ceremonies, setting up his big reveal. He was practically jaunty as he rolled the surgical table between us and brandished a hypodermic needle in each hand.
4: You're going into storage. This is a kids.
3: He said. One of you is going to die tonight. Sheer shock stopped my breathing. What had he just said? hardly begun processing the idea of going into storage when the casualness of his pronouncement of death set in there's no way to explain the dread that word just isn't big enough to describe the horror the confusion and the outrage that came with it but i found the same feelings reflected back at me in the wide petrified stare of my fellow prisoner matt A morgue, I thought, forcing myself to breathe again. They do autopsies here, and those cabinets are for dead people. Later. Gregory said, hiking the sleeve of my gown up to the shoulder. We'll
4: let one of you go. You'll have no memory of any of this. You'll wake up in a normal hospital room, a little beaten up from your accident, totally disoriented. "...but eventually you'll be fine. Fifty-fifty call right now, which one of you that will be. We have some tests yet to run, but we won't take long. We don't actually have much time."
3: He fixed a small plastic vacuum tube to the back of the syringe, tied my arm off at the bicep with a blue rubber tourniquet. He didn't bother swabbing me with alcohol. He drew blood, first from me, then from Matt. Then he came back to me. He wheeled me across the room, toward the wall of cabinets. No! I wanted to scream. Stop! Just please, stop, asshole! Don't you put me in that thing! No! Please! No! We stopped at the wall. He opened one of the drawers to my left, where my head was tilted. Where I could see seven feet of cold metal tray slide out over squeaky steel rivets.
4: We call these cadaver coolers. He said. They're refrigeration units. But don't worry. We unplugged them out, ago.
3: God, make him stop! Don't let him do this to me! He transferred me easily enough. Just a few tugs on the blanket underneath me, and my inert form went from cot mattress to steel tray. Hardly any effort on his part at all. I only weighed 116 pounds. I guessed Matt would be a tougher job. I blinked my eyes repeatedly at him, a quick sequence of two at a time, over and over. No. No. No! He put his hand over my eyes, made shushing noises, slid me in, slammed the door at my feet. Darkness. Through the steel, I could hear him whistling, his hard shoes receding as he went for Matt. breathing it was all I could hear at first in the cadaver cooler hitched irregular close all around me at some point I realized it was only me I don't know how long I was in there time was meaningless unless I wanted to guess the seconds by the count of my own breathing It only became worse when I started to get some feeling back at the tips of my fingers and toes. Being able to lift my head an inch and a half from the steel upon which it rested only brought my forehead into contact with more steel. Being unable to move, to feel, to see, being unable to speak, to beg, to shout... The frustration and terror pulsed in my blood like a swarm of centipedes eating me from the inside out. In my heart and mind, I couldn't stop screaming, but all I could hear was the breathing. My breathing, which grew louder and louder in my ears as the air around me seemed to thicken with spent carbon dioxide. And yet, boxed in as I was... Even as the panic tore at me like ragged fingernails, a part of my brain dislodged itself. I receded, growing smaller, disconnecting. I was losing consciousness. I could sense it happening by slow degrees. My darkened world slipping away, growing distant. My breathing quieted to background noise. And I found myself, perhaps as a defense mechanism, perhaps for no reason at all, going back. Back. Back in time. Back by hours or days. There was no way to know. Back to the car. The early morning hours are quiet on Clifton Road. The only sound is the engine, a lullaby thrum in the soft dark. I yawn and smile. Mom says I'm too old for the babysitting gig, that I should get a real job. But Friday nights are the Samson twins. Easy peasy. Those boys worship the ground I walk on, and I'd spent the last two hours asleep on their couch. It was past midnight when their folks got back home, and that meant a $15 bonus. There's 65 bucks in my purse, the best money I've made all week. But Clifton is a twisty, dangerous road, a 40 mile per hour series of inclines and dips that forces you to pay attention. There aren't many lights, and the trees crowd in on either side. I turn on the radio, try to force myself more awake by sheer willpower. I wish I had stopped at the Starbucks on Route 1. A little one-in-the-morning hazelnut java would have been just the thing. The headlights come from out of nowhere. I'm cresting the hill just before the railroad crossing, and there's no way to have seen or anticipated the other car before it's right on top of me half in and half out of my lane. I jerk the steering wheel hard right out of reflex, not thinking at all, and plow the little Ford Fiesta straight into the only lamppost this side of Route 1. The front of the car caves in with the sound of an aluminum can crumpling, only amplified a thousand times over. I lurch forward, but then I'm instantly thrown back by the force of the airbag breaks my glasses right down the middle I can still hear the tinkling of broken glass the steaming of the cracked radiator when the initial shock subsides and the freshly deployed airbag begins to deflate I taste blood in my mouth and it occurs to me that I'm not dead I might even be okay a bloody nose bruises for sure Probably a pair of black eyes, but I'm basically unhurt. I'm trying to scramble out from under the airbag when I realize the wreck has rendered the driver's side door immovable. I'm uninjured, but trapped. I unclip the seatbelt, worm my way over to the passenger side, and sit up. I take my first unobstructed lungful of air since the impact get my first look at the damage. I'm fine, I tell myself, taking in the front of the car through the windshield, but mom is going to kill me. The hood of the car is a tented ruin, the radiator sending up steam like the stuttering gasps of a dying person. The windshield starts to spiderweb and crack even as I peer through it. I try the passenger door, and find it as intractable as the driver's side. Go through the window, I tell myself. Get out. But I've never been in a car accident before, and I'm still a little dazed. I can't find my glasses anywhere, and my face feels like I've been punched. Which, I suppose, is actually true. I wipe blood from my nose and reach for the rearview mirror to check myself. It comes off in my hand and I can't help but laugh. That's when the flashlight shines in through the passenger side. I push the button and miraculously, the window actually descends, letting in the night air. The face of my rescuer, however, is an absolute shadow.
1: Give me your purse.
3: It says. It's an adult's voice. It's a man. Is it a cop? I start to say something, to question.
1: Shut up and give it to me, bitch.
3: He cuts in, and suddenly I'm staring down the reflective black barrel of a gun.
1: Right now, before I paint the dashboard with your brains.
3: I almost fumble the stupid thing in my efforts to appease him, but I manage to get it into his other hand, quick as I can. And just like that, I'm crying. And I keep crying, even when he withdraws the gun, because I'm scared, and I've just been in an accident, and then this happens, and I don't understand any of it.
1: Shut up,
3: he says. His voice is calm. He's never raised it once. He's going through my purse as I cover my mouth and try to stay quiet.
1: You're no good to me dead. Maybe no good either way.
3: Just make it through this, I say to myself. Stay alive, Amber. Everything else is just details. He's going through my personal things tossing them carelessly to the ground as he loots the contents of my purse. He unclips the little change wallet and takes out the money I just made. But then he puts the money back. And that's somehow scarier than if he had kept it. He holds up my driver's license. The only part of his face I can see in the dim glow of the flashlight is his smile. But I do see his badge... He's a cop after all.
1: Oh well. That's too
3: bad. He says.
1: Too bad for you, Amber. But for me, looks like payday came right on time.
3: He leans in through the passenger window, leading with his gun hand again. But there is no gun. There's a white cloth. He presses it to my face. Even as I try to claw him off. Even as I scream through it. Understanding what it must be. It's damp. It smells funny. That's chloroform, I realize. I'm being kidnapped. And then, there's nothing. I'm gone. When I return to myself to the present moment inside the metal tomb of the blackout box. It was to the sound of Matthew Shane Tracy yelling his head off and to the noise of him bucking and kicking from inside the box directly above me. I could feel it too, vibrating through the steel, all of his futile thumping and hollering and pleading and cursing. Stop it, I thought. Goddamned idiot, don't let them know you're back. Then I tried to make the words. I figured that if I could hear him, he'd be able to hear me. But all I could manage were whispers and hisses, still strangled by whatever medicinal cocktail we'd been given. Perhaps Matthew had been given his earlier, or he was just stronger than me. Still, hardly move at all Let me out. he screamed his cries muffled through the metal heavy hands and feet thundered against the metal ceiling above me, Let me, get me out of this thing, please. i choked on the stale rotten air it was the closest i had come to hearing myself since the car accident matthew i Let wheezed matthew please Be... Quiet. I had no idea what sick, twisted agenda Gregory was harboring, but it wouldn't do to let him know anything we could possibly keep secret. My efforts were no good. Either Matthew couldn't hear me, I could hardly hear myself, or he didn't care. But eventually, he exhausted himself. As he fell silent... My body began to prickle with sleep needles. It would only be a torment, I knew, once I got my mobility back. I'd probably end up losing my shit completely, same as he had. Still, it was hopeful. Voices through the other side of the cabinet door at my feet, muted by distance and the steel barrier that separated us. Male and female. I recognized the first as Gregory's.
4: It should be him. He recovered first. Stronger constitution.
3: The female voice was older. Much older. And carried with it an air of limited patience, currently under duress.
5: They received the same dose, my dear. He only outweighs her by 75 pounds. Leave these things to the doctor, won't you? Now... Bring them out. I want to have a look at them.
3: The heavy shoes over hard tile again. I braced myself when they stopped right at the foot of the cabinet, closing my eyes and willing myself to appear fast asleep. But he drew the top one out first. The tumult that followed was swift but terrible. a Metallic clang and a fleshy thunk. More screams and curses. Promises of violence from Matthew that were quickly silenced by a series of crunching blows that he must have taken full in the face. I couldn't imagine what could have hit him to make that awful sound. Unless it was a sledgehammer. Moans. Crying. Soon muted to a wet, raspy gurgling. Something tied off. Probably a gag of some kind. Through it all, Gregory had not spoken a word. But now, with his stronger prisoner once again subdued, he found his voice, breathy and exhilarated. You just had to make me do that, didn't you, man?
4: It just had to be this way. You poor dumb son of a bitch. I was going to put you to sleep before this next part, you know. But did you stop to think about that? Did you ever stop to think how much it's in your best interest to keep me happy tonight, Matt? Oh no, no, of course you didn't.
3: My legs. I thought I could move my legs if I tried. Instinctively, I wanted to kick, to thrash, but I knew it wouldn't do me any good. I had to remain still, as still as death, and wait... Much as it might drive me crazy, I had to suck it up and... From out in the room, a fresh series of blows. They were even heavier, if that was possible. Punctuated by a crunching noise that could only be breaking bones. Thick cracks that were unbelievably clear over the sound of Matthew's stifled, inarticulate agony grateful I couldn't see what was happening out there. The hearing was bad enough, but that's going to be me, I thought, and my breath caught again. I closed in as I was, the noise was surprisingly loud, but I never would have imagined they would have heard it. Heard me. Until they did. The clamor just outside of my metal prison abruptly stopped, time hung.
5: Bring her out, Gregory, the woman said. I want to see them together before you ruin him.
3: The shoes again. The sound of breathing, labored by toil, coming closer and closer. The latch at the foot of my prison box, unlatching. Eyes shut, Amber, I said to myself. Play possum. Play dead. No matter what they do. He slid me out. Transferred me back to the cot. Chuckled. Could he tell? Line them up together. The old woman said. Place their possessions
5: out on the table where I can reach them. Sedate the boy. He's suffering most terribly in case
3: you hadn't noticed. Then leave us for a few minutes.
4: But, Miss Markham...
3: Gregory started... She'll be good for me, Mrs. Markham assured him. Yes, dear? I made no response. You'll
5: be just outside the door, won't you,
3: Gregory? Now, be a love and fuck off, hmm? The cot moved, the rusty screech of wheels drowning out the sound of Matthew's wet, ragged breath. I caught a whiff of something foul in the air. A hint of ancient rot with a dash of airborne shit, and I knew that she was nearby. Through barely slitted eyelids, I caught a glimpse of her, but only from behind. She was in a wheelchair. Her raven black and steel-gray hair was cropped up in a bun, the back and shoulders of her bright green dress slightly hunched. Too, I noted, the hand that pushed the cot, The GMU class ring that read, School of Nursing, with the year 2020 engraved over the top. Gregory, it seemed, was still in college. The cot halted next to Matthew. I didn't make eye contact. I didn't want to see his face. It was enough to see the bloodied set of brass knuckles that had been left at his feet a sullied surgical mallet next to them, and far worse to behold. However briefly, the compound fracture at both shins, the impossible angle his legs were bent at the knees. I closed my eyes completely again and focused on keeping my breathing regular and slow, regular and slow. I listened to him set our things out on a nearby table, as ordered.
4: All right, tough guy.
3: He then said. Putting you down, night and Shortly after that, he departed. I prayed, however nonsensically, that I would neither see nor hear him ever again. Whatever else happened, maybe he wouldn't be a part of it. The door shut behind him with a most disgruntled click. I know you're awake, Mrs.
5: Markham said. You cannot deceive me, child. Don't worry. I'm not here to cause you any pain or discomfort. I only wish to thank you, and to explain a few things that I know must be troubling you.
3: Next to me, as though to remind Mrs. Markham of his presence, Matthew groaned again. But it was a weaker sound, hardly more than an exhalation. He was fading fast. I wanted to turn my head from him, but I didn't dare. Mrs. Markham was wheeling her way over to us now. She didn't stop between us. She came to my other side. Ignoring Matthew completely, her hand touched my face. Her skin felt like paper, and she smelled like death. I'm not going to be able to keep this up, I thought. I'm going to gag. I'm going to fucking puke. She drew my face away from Matthew and toward herself. I didn't resist. I kept playing dead but my breathing was becoming more rapid. I felt my face twitch. There was no way I was fooling anyone anymore, but I kept my eyes shut. I shut them tight. This close, her very words smelled of hard alcohol and peppermint.
5: There is a reason why Gregory inflicted those injuries upon the boy, Matthew. He should have been anesthetized first. Most unfortunate, but there was a reason. Shall I tell you what it was?
3: I didn't answer, but I started to cry, unable to help myself. I cried just as I had in front of the officer at the scene of the accident, helpless to stop even as I kept my eyes stubbornly shut. Both of you
5: were in terrible car accidents, Amber. Simply awful ones. It's very important that this be made true, be made convincing, The work on the vehicles has already begun. For you, this will include broken hands, a punctured lung, and a concussion. You'll actually be quite a lot more complicated in terms of getting it right than Matthew was, but you'll feel none of it. I'll see to that, I promise.
3: I heard a bottle being opened. I heard her drink. She went on.
5: If you're the one who must actually die, that concussion will have to be upgraded to a fractured skull. If it's Matthew, it'll be simple trauma and blood loss. I'm still waiting from the doctor to hear which of you it will be. He'll be here any time, you know. He'll put you to sleep, and then later on, you'll either wake up or you won't. I'm very sorry if it's you, truth be told. You seem so sweet, and you're so scared. I can tell, you know. I don't blame you. This whole experience must be frightfully unpleasant.
3: Another drink. The bottle being set on the table behind her. A zipper coming open. Something in her hands or on her lap.
5: Look at me, Amber. She said. Please, honey. Don't be afraid. Open your eyes.
3: I didn't. And just like that, she lost patience with me. Her hand gripped my ear, fingers twisting into talons and squeezing until she'd drawn blood. I said look! I opened my eyes. And at first, I thought they weren't working right. Mrs. Markham had yellow skin. Not shiny, not radiant, not glowing. Just the opposite of all three, in fact but actual banana fucking yellow skin. Her eyes were yellow too, minus the dull, sickly pastel blue of the irises. Her stomach was bloated, the fabric of her dress barely containing it, like the sack of a monstrous black widow spider. I understood now. I knew what I beheld. You didn't have to be exceptional in every way to recognize liver disease when it was this obvious.
5: That's better, she said. And now, perhaps, you understand what all this is about.
3: She let go of my ear. She winked a yellow and blue eye at me. She reached her hands under her stomach and fished around. The thing she held at her lap a small object nearly concealed by the underbelly of her cirrhosis swollen spider sack was my purse zipped open up top just as the cop had done she went for my driver's license it was new that license i'd been eligible for more than two years but hadn't taken the test until six months ago now that i had it If that was the thing that had caused all this, for whatever unimaginable reason, I could only wish that I had remained a timid little pedestrian for my entire life. She held it in front of my face. Her jaundiced fingertip tapped the lower left corner just under my face and signature at two words next to a red heart icon that stood out suddenly stark under the bright white ceiling lights of the morgue. Organ donor. I opened my mouth, found my ability to speak had returned. Wait, what? I mean, but... She placed my license back in my purse and put the same fingertip over my lips. Red nail polish gleamed under my nose like newly drawn blood. You're saving my life, child, she said, now withdrawing her hand and sitting back in the chair, her shoulders still scrunched as though all of her bones had been pressed inward.
5: But one of you is, anyway, as soon as the doctor finishes with your blood samples and determines my best match. I'm so grateful to you both. Am so terribly sorry for this ordeal most regrettable
3: but i insisted not raising my voice terrified that anything i did or said that was even slightly amiss might set her off again how why mrs markham don't you have i don't know family or something please I'm only
5: 18. Would you believe I'm only 40? She said. Anyway, how isn't so complicated. They said that money can't buy you everything, but I've got enough to try.
3: (laughs) (laughs) She cackled, a laugh that echoed through the room but didn't reach her eyes. Those remained fixed on me like she expected me to laugh with her
5: my family has done this kind of thing before my own father pulled it off about 20 years or so ago we know people my dear and with a little financial push i've just come to the front of the transplant waiting list
3: my eyes darted around the room seeking options seeking weapons i thought i might be able to move now the sleep needles had receded. It would be a gamble, I knew. There was no telling how ready for this my body really was, and Gregory wasn't far away. And a darkened corner of my brain whispered to me, you have a 50-50 chance if you just wait. That might be your best bet, Amber.
5: And as for why, she went on, I don't just want anyone's liver, you know. There are many factors that come into play when it comes to organ rejection. I have a very rare blood type, you see. The very rarest, in fact. Only one half of 1% of the human population has AB negative blood. But you have it, Amber. You're very exceptional. Has anyone ever told you that?
3: How do you know my blood type? I almost asked. I thought the so-called doctor was still running tests. She beat me to the question. Your whole family gave
5: blood last year before Christmas. The information is purchasable. Strictly speaking, an identical match is necessary for a successful transfusion of this kind. All blood types are listed compatible with AB negative. But every little commonality helps. Game of percentage, don't you know? And this operation is not the kind of thing you can easily do twice. I do not intend to fuck
3: it up. Surely you understand. There were hypodermic needles on the surgical tray, right next to her forgotten whiskey bottle. There was the mallet on the cot with Matthew. Even the brass knuckles.
5: Bit of a toss-up, really, she said. Female organs fail more commonly than male ones. Did you know that? Mother Nature is a sexist, patriarchal bitch, if you ask me. But on the other hand, young Mr. Tracy with the broken legs over there is a bit older than you, and he has a small amount of alcohol in his system. Typical college boy. So many factors. I won't bore you with them all. No time to, anyway. It's the test for human leukocyte antigen that's in play right now, I think. Or something like that. So much medical mumbo-jumbo.
3: She reached again for her bottle, and I just couldn't stop myself. I lurched upright. Or tried to. I grasped at her with both hands. Clearly in my mind's eye, I saw myself do it. And fail. I had just enough strength to roll onto my side, nothing more. My arm hung limply over the side of the cot. Mrs. Markham wheeled back from me, expelled a short bark of a laugh.
5: (laughs) And I don't blame you for that either, my dear. No, no, not at all. You don't want to die, neither do I. Maybe
3: you'll get lucky, little bitch. Behind her, the door opened. The man who stepped through it wasn't Gregory. He was older, cleaner cut. His bearing was cold, his face blank. He was wearing scrubs. Behind him, a coven of subordinates followed him inside, also wearing scrubs. It was the doctor. For one of us, it was time.
5: We have a decision,
3: then? Mrs. Markham asked. The doctor nodded.
2: Close call, he said. But yeah.
3: Help me, I pleaded with them. I only need one, I told myself. Just one of them needs to listen, to give a shit, to care. And finally, there at the very end... I found myself able to finally scream.
1: Somebody fucking help me, please!
3: He looked at my arm, at the track mark Gregory had made without cleaning the inner elbow. His gaze drifted over to Matthew. He shook his head in distaste.
2: Fucking goon.
3: He muttered. Then, to Mrs. Markham.
2: Do you want to know?
3: He asked.
2: We need to get you into prep, ma'am. This has to be done before the next shift change.
4: And that's only eight hours away.
5: Put her under first, she said. I want that bitch to go to sleep and dream about the question.
3: The doctor remembered to swab my arm clean, at least. His attendants wheeled Mrs. Markham out of the room, toward whatever room they used as prep and the surgical theater. I could do nothing but cry, as the remaining members of the team circled me like vultures. Don't do this to me! I begged them. He put the needle in, not listening to me. And then, from under the scrubs, his phone went off. Seriously? I thought... it was almost funny. But the doctor checked it before unsnapping the rubber tourniquet from my arm. Eyebrows arched. A question, not an accusation. He let out a sigh. That's it. He said to his team, but he kept his voice low.
4: The money's gone through. Talk about timing.
3: The tourniquet came off. He leaned in close. I was already starting to drift off when he whispered.
2: You're going to be fine, young lady, and you won't.
3: But the world was graying out.
1: Remember any
3: of it. When I came to in the hospital proper, my memory was foggy, but not dead. It took some time to get it all back when intern gregory popped in with a nurse i didn't recognize to check my casts and my pupil size and to tell me that my mother had been contacted and would be here anytime it was his class ring that triggered the start of my remembering i wanted to strike him but both of my hands were broken i was sick to my stomach too and still dizzy i kept my mouth shut I couldn't let the hospital staff know. There was no way to guess who among them I could really trust. Over the coming days, I was able to learn, however, that there was a certain patient named Matthew Shane Tracy just down the hall from me who was also alive and also recovering from a car accident. From the same car accident. On Route 1 not clifton road we'd gone head on into each other to hear it from the staff matthew didn't remember his truth and i didn't tell him either not then not yet he'll know soon enough and as for mrs markham she had died tragically on the operating table before they'd even gotten her own rotten liver out she had gone into prep and never woken up. It seemed that, once paid, the people who had been in on this monstrous little scam together, with the possible exceptions of Gregory and the cop who had first pulled me over, had decided they didn't need Mrs. Markham to live. And who could blame them? With her dead under the knife, There would never be any tearful bedside confession before her eventual death. No chance for their crime to ever be discovered. Certainly, Matthew and I wouldn't tell. So far as they knew, we couldn't. But I have an eidetic memory. I'm exceptional in every way. I sat on all of it until I was well out of the hospital. Only now, and only to the real police, and to my mom, was I ever going to talk about any of this. I'd write it down first, get my facts straight. I'd pray people wouldn't presume this was all paranoia brought on by the concussion. I'd hope they'd at least investigate. I hope that the first cop who reads this is a good cop. If not, I could be in trouble. It's a chance I'm willing to take.
2: For more information, including pictures and videos of the stories told on this podcast, or to suggest stories for future episodes... Please visit us at CreepyPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or email us at CreepyPod at gmail.com. All stories told on this podcast can be found at CreepyPastaWikia.com and are protected by a Creative Commons license. Some rights reserved unless otherwise stated.
1: The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of Creepy, for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. SCP Archives, with full cast storytelling. Horror Queers, genre commentary from the LGBTQ perspective. The Boo Crew, for horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com podcasts.